standing with me, and if you have a Bible, would you grab one? Turn to Psalm 34 with me. We go to the scriptures every single week because we believe that it is here where Christ is most clearly made known to us. The beauty of everything you were created to be is found right here. The salvation that you have in Christ is found right here. It is revealed, it is before us, and this morning we're going to taste of it. Psalm 34, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. Would you read this with me? King David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer hunger and want, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. May God bless this word. May be seated at this time. It's a good day, isn't it? Welcome to Summer in the Psalms, Volume 2. This entire summer is an opportunity that we all have to simply grow in prayer. Most of us feel like we're not good enough at praying, and all of us are perfectly right when we think that. And yet, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to beat yourself up. I don't want you to be convicted necessarily even this morning that, that you don't pray enough. What I want you to see this morning is the gospel. What I want you to see is God's infinite love for each and every one of you. And I simply want you to respond in prayer. And at Waduk, we did this last summer, and it was so amazing. As you can tell, we're doing it again. I heard countless testimonies. I grew myself in prayer, and it was, a, it was, it was a, such a beautiful, refreshing time. And summer is the most amazing time of the year, right? I, I don't care what anybody says. I love Christmas, but summer is truly the most wonderful time of the year, especially where we live. I kicked my summer off with a bang, and I have a picture up here as to what I did on Friday. I, got, I have a picture up here of, of how my summer started. That's my dog. And uh, we went to the beach. I shared this on Facebook. I was really proud of this picture. And so if you want to know how my summer's going, how my weekend was, this should answer everything for you. It's been phenomenal. I love summer because it's, it's laid back. It's, there's a little bit more freedom. My wife is a school nurse, so she's off for the entire summer. So they say happy wife, happy life. It's totally true. Um, it's just a really wonderful time. And in our culture, it's kind of laid back. So we feel like this is a perfect time to think about prayer and, and what it means for our lives. And yet, I want to begin our prayer initiative not by saying, 
pray more, work harder, just do more of it. You know, commit to praying on your knees for an hour every single morning. Literally roll out of your bed onto your knees and just pray. You know, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you to, to grit it out. I'm not telling you to work really hard. I just want to put the gospel before you this morning. I want to put the beauty of God's love before you this morning because if you truly see it, I believe that it is prayer that radiates from the gospel. Prayer radiates from not just a taste of the gospel, but a personal, individual, specific, and unique taste of the gospel. In Psalm 34, as we just read, King David writes this psalm. And I was thinking of a word that I feel like would describe King David. And the word that, first word that came to my mind, so I'm just going to roll with it, was doofus, right? Doofus David, right? Doofus was a word in the 90s. Remember, remember that word, doofus? Like you'd use that word. It was like a, you know, it's like someone that just doesn't have it all there together. Like just kind of always makes these mistakes. Kind of a, just a dumb person. Not because they are dumb, just because they do dumb stuff. And that's King David. And King David, we're going to read uh, throughout the entire summer. He wrote a lot of these psalms. God loved him so much. And yet he just like failed so often. He was committing adultery. He was uh, using bad war practices. He was selfish. He was sinful. And at the same time, he is so encouraging to me and you. Because even though he made so many mistakes and he was such a failure in so many ways, God loved this guy so much simply because David relied and depended on God for everything. Psalm 34 says one thing that God saves those who turn to him. God saves those who trust him. And we have often heard the gospel, but this morning I want you to marvel at it. The gospel radiates prayer. In Psalm 34, 8, David says probably the most famous verse in this psalm. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you hear that word taste? It's kind of a unique word because uh, in the original language, the, the word was na'am, meaning taste. And the interesting thing about it is that in the Old Testament, the word's used probably about seven or eight times. And every single time that that word is used in the Old Testament, it is always in conjunction with food. Like every time, like it's not just some, you know, allegorical imagery. Literally every time this word is used, it's almost in the same sentence as a kind of food in the Old Testament. And so when David is writing this, he's literally saying, I want you to like taste and see that the Lord is good because God's salvation and the gospel is to be personally tasted. Because nobody can taste God for you. Nobody can taste his goodness on your behalf. Here at Wide Oak, we believe that salvation is a personal matter. It's a personal choice. And that we step into salvation personally through a personal realization. And my question to you this morning is, what has your personal experience with the gospel been? And do you need one this morning? Because after all, what good is a sunny day if you stay inside? What good is buying a house if you never move there? What good is getting a new car if you never drive it? What good is a present if you never open it? What good is a song if you never hear it? What good is a movie if you never see it? What good is a meal if you never taste it? 
What good is a kingdom if you're not a part of it? What good is a treasure if you never find it? What good is a love that is not embraced? What good is a hope that is not believed? What good is a beauty that's never seen? What good is a miracle if it's explained away? What good is an open jail cell if you never leave it? And what good is forgiveness if you never receive it? And what good is the gospel if you don't believe it? There's a story in Matthew 16. If you want to turn there with me, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus is walking around with his disciples, and uh, they've been hearing the Pharisees talk about a bunch of stuff. They were kind of the teachers of the day, and Jesus was performing miracles, and he was like blowing everybody's mind. And everybody had all these different opinions as to who exactly Jesus was. And a lot of people thought he was like a prophet, which means just a special person, kind of enlightened by God. Um, Elijah in the Old Testament and Jeremiah, they were prophets. Okay, they, they have a special revelation. But a lot of people, they didn't think he was really God. They didn't, they didn't think he was all the way. He was just kind of had some good insight. And I want you to hear this exchange that Jesus has with his disciples. Verse 13, it says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? He's saying, Who do you think I am? And the disciples said to him, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, who's a prophet. Others say Jeremiah or one of these prophets. But Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which is Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Just by believing that Christ was Lord, Jesus like opens up like a huge can of blessing, right? Oh, you think I'm God? I'm going to build my kingdom on you. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom and hell will not prevail against you. He goes, I'm going to build my church on you. You will be blessed. You, you will, you'll have struggles, but I'm going to build, I'm going to do amazing work through your life. Not because he worked hard, but because he simply looked at Jesus and said, you truly are the son of God. What Jesus was saying is that a personal taste of the gospel is necessary. It's not a communal thing. We, we gather together to worship, but we gather together to join our individual stories and our individual tastes of the gospel to make a wonderful and beautiful meal in this community. We need each other, but we also need a personal taste of the gospel. This is where prayer comes from. No one can experience Jesus for you. We can set the table. I can preach a sermon. I can have a really funny story in it that makes you laugh a lot and think I'm a, you know, a person you should take advice from and then close you at the end with a, with a good word about Jesus. We can have the perfect music, which we did this morning. It was awesome. We can have the Lord's Supper, communion. It can taste wonderful. Uh, we can have a great coffee, which we do. We can have a beautiful building, which we do. And yet if we don't have a personal faith in God, he can't save us if we won't trust him.
And Jesus was God's love coming before us, that we would give our whole lives to it, that we would be made perfect, not because we are perfect, but because Jesus is perfect, and then hands his perfection to us, hands his death and sacrifice to us. Food is only good when tasted, right? Like if I'm telling you there's this really good restaurant, which by the way, Kalina's in the Heights is my favorite restaurant, right? And yet I could tell you about it all day. They have like the best bread. I have like the bread and the oil stuff. You dip it in, you know, I have like my own little way that I mix it together. I put the Parmesan, the pepper, and the oil, and they have the most amazing bread, and it's so phenomenal, right? Can I get an amen for Kalina's? Amen. You guys know what's up. And yet, when I tell you about this restaurant, the ultimate fulfillment is not that you would say, wow, he makes it sound so good. I love listening to John talk about Kalina's. No, no, no. The ultimate fulfillment is when you get yourself over there, you say, I want to sit at the beautiful table by the, by the window, which is where I always sit, and you taste it for yourself. The ultimate climax is a personal experience and personally tasting it. And that is the gospel, and that is what David says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's like, I've told you what he did for me. He saved me. I was in a horrible situation. And I don't have time to give you the background of the situation that David was in, but if you're curious, go look up the background of that situation, and you'll just see David is such an idiot, and yet God saves him anyway. Gets himself into a horrible situation that's all David's fault, and that when he's, he's at the very end, God just saves him and removes him. And David says, I've experienced this, and now it's your turn to experience and to taste this. I was at a Catholic mass um, about a couple months ago supporting a friend of mine who was going through a tough time. And uh, we, I went to this mass. I haven't been to a Catholic mass too many times in my life. Um, but I went this one time to support my friend. And um, at the end of the, the service, uh, it came time for the Lord's Supper, communion. And I was really excited because for me, that's my favorite part of the service is like literally being able to walk to the front, get alone with God, have a moment to pray, to think through it. And so it came towards the end of the Mass, and I was expecting to go to the front and partake with the church because of my faith in Christ in, in the communion. And the priest so eloquently but straightforwardly t- said that if you weren't Catholic, you, uh, you couldn't have communion, basically. And so it's like, I'm a pastor, you know? It's like, I, I've, I've been following Christ for 10 years, you know? And I love him, and I'm trying to serve him, and I'm not perfect, but I'm trying. And it was such a buzzkill because I was like, the whole time I was looking forward to this, you know, and then basically the, 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 the priest gives me like a participation award, you know, like he says, yeah, you can't have communion, but if you come, we'll give you like a special little blessing on the head or whatever. And I felt like a, like a reject because my faith in Christ wasn't enough to take me to, to the front. And, you know, Catholics that believe in Jesus, they are obviously Christians. This is nothing, you know, uh, against them necessarily, but like, For me, it was like there was somebody kind of standing in the way of me personally getting to know God and experiencing that moment. I felt like someone was keeping me from tasting the beauty of God's love for me. And one of the key things that we we believe in our tradition that's so important to us is this thing we call the priesthood of the believer. And what that means is that we believe that you don't need me, you don't need some religious professional, you can go directly to God at any time. That Jesus is the priest, not me. That Jesus is the one that gets us to the Father, not somebody who appears to have more spiritual knowledge than we do. And this is one of the reasons why whenever we take the Lord's Supper, 
um, we have a moment where uh, we come and get it, and, and one of the things we really emphasize, and we know it's awkward sometimes, but we emphasize you take it on your own. And here's the reason why. Because we believe in the priesthood of the believer, meaning that the, the pastor steps out of the way for a moment and makes it between you and God. It's got to be a personal encounter. It has to be a personal taste. Because when you stand before God, I won't be there with you. But Jesus will. In that moment, we want to pray for ourselves. We want to reflect personally. And I know it's awkward and it's something you have to grow in. I know it's a transition. But we believe that we connect with God simply through Christ. When we think for ourselves, it becomes real, it becomes personal. It's a personal taste with Jesus. So prayer radiates from personal taste of the gospel. So the gospel is first something you must personally taste. And then as we begin our summer prayer initiative, here's where it reels in a little bit. Prayer is the natural response to the gospel. Raise your hand if you've ever like attempted to like grow in prayer and failed. I have. A couple times a year usually, right? You make a resolution, you start a summer prayer initiative. And I think one of the things that's the difficulty there is any discipline that you start that is not motivated by love and affection and a true sense of spiritual desire will eventually fall flat in your life. When we pray, we don't pray because God's gonna love me more if I pray, God's going to be happier with me if I pray. We, we pray because we see what God has done for us in our lives and the problem is we don't reflect enough on the gospel to be motivated to pray. We don't realize how much God loves us and that it is God's love for us that motivates us to pray. You've been noticing in the services, we start with a gospel reading at the beginning of every service. And it's because what we want to do is we want to lay the beauty of the gospel of what Christ has done for us before you. We want to warm your hearts. The goal is that your heart would be strangely warmed as often happens in awakenings and revivals, that your heart would be strangely warmed by this reality that I've always known God loves me, but there's this extra sense that God really loves me, that I sinned all week, I made so many mistakes, and yet I'm brought back to the gospel that Christ paid for everything on the cross and that I'm made right because of what he did for me. It's not that I had the perfect words or that I did everything just right. Literally, I'm redeemed because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross and gave me because he loved me. And it's amazing. And when you look upon this, David says, you become radiant. Psalm 34, verse 3 through 5 says, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Prayer is the great dividing line in our life, I think, as to whether or not we really, really understand the gospel. Like, imagine if you were like about to get run over by a train or something and some, somebody like saved you. Would you forever feel grateful to them? Yes. 
But I think in our American world, we just get so bored and life is so nominal and it just feels like we're just kind of hanging out and we forget the beauty of what God has done for us. You see, if the gospel doesn't radiate prayer in our lives, we're not really seeing it. You see, a life of radiance comes from a life of dependence. And this is so beautiful because uh, that word radiant that, that, uh, that David uses um, is, is nahar. It means to be lightened. That when you see what God has done for you, it naturally lightens you. And, and that word is only used that one time. Only one time in all of Scripture is used right there. And the word that is like second closest to it and the ESV translation translated as radiant is only used one time. That word radiant is only used one time in the ESV Bible in the New Testament. And it's used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus Christ where he took some of his disciples away with him to a secret place on a mountain. The closest disciples he took with him and he like transfigured before him, meaning transformed, meaning he was like shining with the glory of God. And they saw it and they were like amazed. And they were like, man, we got to build a house here. We got to stay here. We got to invite all of our friends because this is amazing. It says that Jesus was like radiant before them with the glory of God. And they were seeing this and like, oh my goodness. This isn't just like a social justice guy who's healing the poor. This isn't just like some random, this is like God. And he's like transcending before us. And we're seeing the glory of God. And it's like, it's like brightening. It's just, it's almost unbearable to see, but we're seeing it. And that's the same word used right here to say that those who look to him are radiant. That like when you see the glory of God, your face is just full of it because it is amazing and it's otherworldly. And this is the gospel. That we're so amazed by the grace of Jesus that it transforms us. We've often described prayer as wading into the ocean of God's love. As in like, the image that works for me is like when I go to the ocean and I, I walk out and, and you know that moment when like you can no longer touch the, the bottom of the ocean and now you're just immersed in the ocean and, and you've got so much less control. But we took our dog swimming uh, this past um, past week and I have like literally cuts all over my chest where my dog like nailed me with his claws because we took him out into the ocean just to see if he could swim right um and so we took him out there turns out he can you know it's a very natural instinct for them but he was so terrible he was like freaking out every time he went out there you know like like the second he couldn't touch the ground anymore he's like swimming to Halsey the whole time because he doesn't trust me you know he's like swimming to Halsey and she's like picking up and saving him and it's like this like 100 pound dog she's holding in the middle of the ocean and, and prayer is like wading out to that place where like you, you can no longer touch the bottom and you're not in control. And it's the scary part of prayer, but it's the beautiful part of prayer. Because when I'm in control of my life, it never goes well. And we're trying to hold on to our life with this death grip and I want my life to come out the way I want it to be. And we've got a struggle, we've got a problem, and we, we've got this outcome that we know because we're so smart how it's supposed to happen how it's supposed to look and prayer is wading into the ocean past the point where your feet can still touch the sand and being immersed in God that is what prayer is and yet it is the gospel that gets us into the water the problem is that's prayer but the problem is we don't have the motivation to even begin praying 
And yet David was radiant because he saw how God had saved him. Trying to prayer, trying to pray without a sense of how God has saved you is an empty discipline that falls short. David says, taste and see. What does that mean for your life today? Whatever that thing is that you're worrying about, that you're anxious about, that's on your mind, that's on your heart, that's not resolved, give it to God and trust that he will resolve it in his time, in his way. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know if you're a believer or not. You're not sure. You're not really walking with Jesus. Give him your life. Trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your rightness with God, and not your own works, and see what he does in your life. Give your kids to Jesus and just pray that continually. Give your family, give your job, give, give everything you do to him. Taste and see that he is good. I'll close with a story. Uh, there's a guy named uh, John Newton, who you may have heard of. He's most well known for writing the song Amazing Grace. And uh, we're going to close our service this morning by singing this song. And I pray that it's so powerful to you. I hope it makes you see God's grace for you as amazing. But John Newton was an interesting guy. He was born in Britain in the 1700s, and he He's what he would call um, kind of a rebellious guy. Britain in the 1700s is kind of like the, the Wild West. A lot of bad stuff was going on in Britain at that time. They were losing the colonies and a lot of poverty. It's kind of a crazy place, and John Newton grew up in that environment. His mom was kind of Christian, but then she died when he was really young. By his own words, he said, I sinned with a high hand and tried to seduce others into sin. This guy was a, 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 he was a sinner's sinner, I guess you could say. Eventually, this guy grows up living in his ways and becomes a slave trader. And he said, I was a slave trader, meaning I traded other humans into slavery. And he said, and I loved my job. This was John Newton, the, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace that we sing all the time. And one day, he was on a merchant ship, and a really big storm came. And you see a trend here. A lot of guys get radically converted in the midst of storms. I was in one a few weeks back, and I totally get why, right? Because it, 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 it gets rid of the illusion that you're in control of your life. Storms and natural disasters remind you of your human frailty. So he's in this storm, and he thinks he's going to die. And he says, God, if you will save me, just like King David, right? Like, just like Psalm 34, right? Blessed are those who take refuge. He goes, God, if, if you'll save me, I will give my life to Jesus. I, I've heard he's a son of God. I heard he does things in people's lives. I heard he can make us clean. I know I'm not clean. If you get me out of the storm, then I'll follow you. Gets out of the storm, becomes a Christian. Along his Christian journey, he realizes, you know, I probably can't be a slave trader anymore, right? This is probably contradictory with my whole claim of faith, right? Like God set me as a captive free of my sin. I can't be enslaving other people. So he stops being a slave trader, and he begins serving in the local church, and he begins writing songs with a depressed poet, okay? So let me, let me show you this team. You got a depressed poet, right? Kind of a, in our world today, he'd be considered like emo, right? Emotional. So you got this depressed poet guy. I don't know if they had like the hair like that back in the day, but if that gives you like, just a depressed kind of whiny guy poet, right? 
befriends the ex-slave trader, right? I mean, the profession that of all, besides thievery, was like the most looked down upon, right? So you've got a a depressed poet and an ex-slave trader, and these two guys get together in the church, and they begin writing a song every week for a weekly Thursday evening prayer gathering in the 1700s for their church in Britain. And one week, out of nowhere, one of the songs they write for their Thursday evening prayer gathering is a song called Amazing Grace, which would go on, it was just a random church, random song, goes on to become the most recognizable Christian hymn of all time. Okay, let me me put this for you. God uses a depressed poet and an ex-sinful, rebellious slave trader He saves them by his goodness and grace, brings them together in the church, and they write a song that we're going to sing today and that will probably be echoed throughout eternity. Do you see the beauty of what the gospel does and what it makes people? And then you read the words of the song and it makes so much more sense. He says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me because he saw himself as as a sinner of sinners. When he says a wretch like me, that refers to when he was a slave trader. Amazing grace that, slaved, that saved a slave trader. What is it that you think keeps you from God this morning? What sin is so bad? What's so evil that's keeping you from God? How dare we question that God could not make us clean? It is God who defined what clean is in the first place, and he wants to make every one of us clean and pure and holy and different. And then he says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. T'was grace that brought me here this far, and grace will lead me home was in reference to when he was on the boat and God saved him, but then he got back to life and it was still hard. And the same God that saved him on the boat was going to ride him into eternity and be with him forever. And then here's the coolest part of it. Here's the part that just blows me away, brings me to tears. It's just, it's so amazing. They say that the actual melody of the song, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. They say that melody they are almost 100% sure that it came from one of the melodies that the slaves on the slave trip uh, ship that he would drive would sing. Because a lot of songs back then, a lot of the hymns that you all know and love, as you all probably know, originated as bar tunes that were translated into hymns, were given Christian lyrics. They took secular music and gave it Christian words and it became Christian music all of a sudden. And yet this song, they say, sounds nothing like a bar hymn. They are almost 100% positive that the melody of this song, and you can tell, it originated from an old spiritual hymn that the slaves would sing aboard the slave ship. And that is amazing grace. (laughs) And isn't it amazing that God takes a depressed poet and an ex-slave trader saves them and then uses a melody that he learned while being a slave ship driver and makes it into a song that blesses the church every single week from there on out. That God transforms all of our brokenness and uses it for his holiness. This morning, if you trust in Jesus and what he has done for you, you are clean, you are new, 
You are not a sin addict in God's eyes. You are perfect forever. You are fully radiant. You are right. You're, you're, you're more glorious than the shining sun. You attest to God's glory more than the most beautiful mountains. You in God's eyes are above the ocean and you're above the mountains and you're above everything that you admire and adore. And we are made right in Jesus and the gospel and what he has done. And all we do is have faith in this amazing grace. It's all we do. You see, John Newton, just like King David, radiated. He was known as a man of prayer. He radiated prayer as a result the gospel. And as we try to pray this summer, we're going to read through a book together. We've got weekly psalms we're going to be reading. We're going to have prayer gatherings, all that wonderful stuff. But we pray as a result of what God has done for us. God is not standing behind you with a whip like a slave driver forcing you to become more moral. He is a loving servant that came to give you everything you need that we would be reunited with God forever. Why do God loves you so much? He has amazing grace for all of your sin, all of your failures this week, all the things you did. It's okay in Christ. He's already made you clean. He's already broken those chains and we keep chaining ourselves back up, but he's already broken them. He wants to make you new. He wants to make you holy. And this morning, as we come and take communion, we're literally going to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good that he died for you to renew you. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And God, it's only by your power that we are saved. And God, we just thank you for what you've done. We thank you for how amazing and how marvelous it is. We thank you that in you we find peace and rest and perfection and that we don't have to run ourselves ragged, but that we can rest in you this morning. I pray this morning if there's someone in here who's been far from you, who's kind of been removed and struggling with life, I, I just pray, God, that you would renew their hope this morning, that you would remind them of your love for them. And that all they need to do is trust their Father and that you will provide for them. Make us radiant this morning. Make us radiant, make us new. As we sing, as we take the Lord's Supper, would we see the beauty of the gospel and would we marvel at it, God? Make it seem amazing to us. Awaken our hearts to what it is and to all of your love for us. We ask all these things in the perfect name of the Father, and the Son, and God's holy, perfect spirit. Amen.